seat. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, both of you. Appreciate that. It is, it is so good to be together, just, uh, you know, each week, just being filled with the Spirit of God and the company of one another as brothers and sisters. It's, it's good to be here. And so today's a really special day. We got some fun things to do, uh, one of which is starting, technically, I guess, starting a new sermon series. If you're new to the branch, uh, we don't start new sermon series often because we preach verse by verse through the Bible. So we, we did Exodus over the course of about two years. Uh, we spent six months in Ephesians, and we're going to spend all the spring semester in Paul's letter uh, to the Philippians, which is where we'll be today. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab that. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there is a black hardback one on the end of every row. You can grab one of those, and we'll... Um, Philippians is on page 921, so if you want to go ahead and, and flip there. One of, the, one of the rhythms that we started um, this year, if you haven't been around for a little bit, is we try to take a portion of each gathering to pray for an unreached people group uh, in the world. And we do that for a few reasons. One is to soften our hearts. Most people, most Christians, don't live with the same sort of freedoms that we live. They don't have buildings like this where they can meet freely and open a Bible. A lot of these People don't even have Bibles. And so uh, we want to make it part of our regular practice, a regular rhythm within our church to pray for those folks. And so this week, our uh, place of prayer is Sudan. Um, I'll give you a few little tidbits about Sudan. And uh, as you go to communion or in your response time today, and then throughout the week, we just want to encourage you to pray for our brothers and sisters in Sudan. So the, the primary thing, obviously, and most of you, if you know anything about Sudan, is there have been generation after generation after generation of civil war. A lot of violence. Um, religious freedom is non-existent. There, there are people groups within Sudan where it's 0% evangelical, which means there are no Christians in entire towns, entire populations where the gospel has never reached. And so we want to pray for those people. We want to pray for the courageous men and women. Maybe it's even some of you who would go to these places in Sudan and other parts of the world as uh, bearers of the gospel, bringing good news in the word of God as it exposes sin and points us to a good and loving Savior. Uh, so let's pray for the churches. And um, you know, the other thing that Sudan has a lot of because of the violence is refugees. And the gospel always has a, a hard time getting into places like that because people are always on the move. And we, we've been talking about this for weeks, though, that there is no hurdle too great for the gospel to clear, and clear by a long shot. I don't know if you've ever seen a high jumper, but this is like way over the bar, like not even close to hitting its butt on the, the bar, you know? So um, let's pray for Sudan this morning, okay? Let's do that now, and then we'll jump into Philippians. Father, we are very thankful for a chance just to gather together. I'm thankful for uh, James leading us and welcoming us in, and Jared as he walks us through what it looks like to live like Jesus with a generous life. Thankful for those leading us in the band and those in the booth, those in our kids' classes. And Father, now, very intentionally and very specifically, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Sudan. We pray that there would be a freedom there, that we pray that there would be a gospel movement uh, that changes the trajectory of an entire country. So, Lord, we, uh, we love you. We trust you. We know that 
you are working all things together for the good of those who love you and who call on your name. And so we pray that Sudanese brothers and sisters would begin to call on your name because of the courageous work of missionaries uh, to their place. So we love you, we trust you. We pray now that as we open your word, you would show us who you are and what you're about and call us to live like Jesus. So we pray these things in the beautiful name of Jesus our Lord. God's people said, amen. Okay, uh, we're also doing baptisms today. So I don't know if you were outside before you came inside. Um, it's, it's cold, and it's going to be great, okay? So um, we will do that at the end of the service. So again, if you haven't been around the branch, you don't know a little bit about our rhythm, this is not our building, if you can't tell. Um, this is a gym. Um, so we do baptisms outside in a horse trough, and uh, you work with what you got. And so um, we'll be out there at the end of our service. So when, when I come back up at the end, we'll just move our worship from inside to outside and celebrate uh, that Jesus has defeated death. Uh, that Jesus brings dead things to life as we celebrate newness of life uh, for a new sister in Jesus. And so uh, someone who's been walking with Jesus for a while, uh, but has decided that she needs to proclaim that through baptism. And so we'll, we'll celebrate that at the end. We're also commissioning a brother. I said this last week, I misspoke last week. He's not going to China. He's going to Taiwan, Willie, and we'll bring him up at the end. Uh, he'll be gone for, I believe it's a year. It's a long time. He's gonna, he will continue to be a member here. And that's, that's very intentional. You know, we want to support him. We want to pray for him. We want to remember him often. So many things that Paul's writing, even in this introduction this morning as we jump into Philippians. That is what we want to be for Willie as he goes and, uh, and, and, and does what he's going to be doing in Taiwan. And so we'll bring him up at the end and pray over him and, uh, and send him out. And so this is his last Sunday here at the branch for a little while. So, all right, let's look at Philippians. I'm going to give you a quick introduction. If you've been here for the last couple of weeks, we were looking at Acts as a, really as a way to pave the way to study this letter that Paul wrote to a church in Philippi. One of the things that we saw in Acts is uh, how the gospel took hold of this place. It was literally an unreached people group. One of the things that we learned through Acts was that there were not 10 men in Philippi who were following Jesus. We know that because there were no synagogues and the women had gathered down by the river to pray. And so that's where Paul and Timothy and, and Luke and Silas go and we, they find them there and they join in and they begin to preach the gospel and the spirit moves in a mighty way and a domino effect happens. Lydia is converted and then her household, a demon is cast out of a slave girl and then the gospel advances and then a jailer of all things, a jailer comes to know Jesus and his whole household believes and is baptized. And so as we look through what Paul is writing this letter, this is about 10 years after that, okay? Uh, the Philippi journey was Paul's second missionary journey, okay? He had three of them, uh, and this is in the second one. So about 10 years after he was in Philippi preaching the gospel and planning a church, he writes this letter from a prison in Rome. This is one of the prison epistles that we're going through each of Paul's prison epistles over the course of the next year. So we just finished Ephesians, doing Philippians. We have Colossians and Philemon uh, on the way down the road in 2024, maybe into 2025. We'll see how it goes, okay? So 10 years after leaving, he writes this, this letter. We often call them books of the Bible. These are letters, love letters, really, written to a church that he cares deeply for. There's a couple things going on that's important for us to look at before we even read the text. There's a little bit of disunity that's happening in this church. We'll see this in a few weeks when we get into chapter 4, uh, particularly some disruption that's going on between two women in the church. And Paul loves them enough to call them out. We see their names in Scripture, okay? And this isn't a way to Lord shame. This is a way to push the church towards Christ's likeness and unity, which is one of the major themes throughout 
Philippians. So here, here are some of the themes that we'll see over the course of the next five months as we look at this letter. The, the theme, primary theme is joy. And what's crazy is Paul's writing about joy shackled to another man. Okay? He's not just in prison. He is tied to someone else because he is a threat to the empire. Okay? And so as he's chained, he writes these letters. And they're beautiful letters. Philippians, I would imagine if you've been around church at all in your life, you've read Philippians. You probably have a coffee cup that has 16 Philippians verses on them, okay? When we were in Dallas, we, we led uh, uh, the BCM at SMU. Uh, not a Christian campus, by the way, in case you were wondering. And we would always joke, we were teaching through Philippians, uh, that the Philippians might have the most per capita coffee cup verses of any other letter or book in the Bible. And so our students lovingly every Christmas would give me a new coffee cup with a new Philippians Bible verse on it. And uh, those are somewhere in storage, you'll be glad to know. Um, but so we see this idea of joy. We see this theme of suffering. We see this central theme of unity in prayer, even through these verses today as Paul's praying for these people that he loves. We see a theme of community. And ultimately, the, the major theme here is that Christ is greater. He's greater than the disruption. He's greater than the disunity. He's greater than the empire. He's greater than the shackles on Paul's feet. Jesus is better. One of the things that Philippians offers us, like most of these prison epistles, is really robust theology. Anybody excited about that? I'm, I'm excited about that. But we see these theological pinnacles, these peaks of the gospel of Jesus, the, the person of Jesus, which in the theological world, the doctrine of Christology, basically from start to finish, we're going to be learning about the person and work of Jesus Christ. We're going to see what it looks like to have joy in Christ and what it looks like to suffer for and in Jesus Christ. Those are the big theology peaks that we will look at over the course of this sermon series. But Paul ultimately is writing this letter for two reasons. He's writing to encourage people that he loves and to exhort them to advance the gospel with joy. In a very real way, this letter was written to us. And so as we read every verse of the letter to Philippi, let's see it as a letter that was written to the Branch Church in 2024, that we would go out to advance the gospel with great joy. So now, let's read the Word of God. I'm going to break this up into three sections. And so we'll start with the first two verses, which are known as the greeting. So this is Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, or of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you, just if we can do this, is this okay? How many of you have read this book before, this letter? Have you read Philippians? Okay. So just about everyone in the room. Oftentimes, We'll talk about this. We like to skip over certain things, don't we? You know, we're hurry. We got to get to the, the good stuff, right? And we skip, a lot of times we'll skip numbers. We'll skip chronologies. We'll skip greetings. We'll skip salutations. There's so much beauty in these first two verses. We literally were talking about doing an entire sermon just on Paul's greeting to the church in Philippi. You'll be glad to know that it didn't line up with the semester calendar, so we're not doing that today. But there's so much fruit here. As, you, as we read through the rest of this passage, I want you to make notes. If you're writing your Bible, just mark. Every time you see the word all, just put a little, a little nick under it, a little tick next to it. If you, every time you see the word every, make a note. 
right? Paul is talking about all the people in Philippi that he loves. So let's look at this. Paul and Timothy are servants. This word servants is the Greek word doulos, which is where we get the term bondservant or slave. Now remember, Paul is a prisoner, literally a prisoner, a slave to Caesar in Rome. And yet he has now said, I am a servant. I am a slave of Christ Jesus. Why is that important? Why is that important? Because he's taking his situation and he reoriented it to the gospel. I don't care what my circumstances, what Paul is saying, I don't care what my circumstances are in the world, I am a servant of Jesus first and foremost. And if that, even if that alone would be our prayer as a church, how different would Lumpkin County look if that was true of us? How different would UNG look or Lumpkin County High School or wherever you work or maybe even in your house? How different would it look if we lived our lives as doulas, as servants of Christ Jesus. Now look at later in verse 1. He says, to all, there you go, nick it, to all the saints. Who are all the saints? Who are they? Do we know them? Do we know their names? Have we seen their faces in Scripture? Yes, we have. It's Lydia. It's a slave girl. It's a dirty jailer, right? It's later, even in chapter 4, we see more people. Clement is introduced to us. Paul knows them by name because he loves them and he calls them out. Yodia, Syntyche, all of these people, these are people that Paul knows. He's walked with them. He's rubbed shoulders with them. He's done the work of the gospel together with all the saints who are at Philippi with the pastors and the deacons, the overseers, the shepherds, the elders, doing the work of gospel ministry in the world. It is a group. It is a family of people that Paul is thankful to be a part of. Verse 2, grace to you and peace. Grace and peace. It sounds like the end, doesn't it? Grace and peace to you. It's the beginning. It is the foundation. It is the start of every good story. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The chains on Paul's feet are not Caesar's, right? That's why he says, I'm a bondservant of Christ's. He is a servant of Jesus. His heart is captured more than his feet are shackled. He is the catalyst for the gospel movement in Macedonia, starting in Philippi. I introduced you guys to Chrysostom last week. Anybody remember that? You came back, so that was good. He's the Archbishop of Constantinople. Come on. You guys don't remember that? It was probably the highlight. Anyways, he's known as the doctor of the church. I got two weeks in a row, I'm going to quote him, okay? So you know what I'm reading right now, all right? He says this, he says, one who is a slave of Christ is truly free from sin. One who is a slave of Christ is truly free from sin. If he is truly a slave of Christ, he's not a slave in any other realm. So here's what I know. All of us are captivated by something that the world has to offer. All of us. You're not excluded. I don't care how spiritual you are. I don't care how many times you come to the church. I don't care how many times you go to Wednesday night Bible study. I don't care how many times you go to family group. All of us are shackled to something of the world. It's luster, it's shine, it's movement, it's pace, it's whatever it is. All of us are drawn to something else. You know how I know that? Because the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. You don't get excluded because you're Reverend Stephen. By the way, that's my name, so Reverend, okay? I can't make it warm outside, but, you know, it is what it is. 
But all of us, no matter our title, no matter our position, this is, this is now who we are. We have this shackle. We have this, this draw, this pull. It's called sin in our lives that makes us think that something that is dirty, something that is broken is beautiful and right. That is what is wrong with humanity. And Christ came to restore what was broken, to be the ultimate beauty in his death, burial, and resurrection. Let's look at verse 3. Okay. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That word partnership is the word koinonia, which is where we get fellowship. Okay. It is, literally means life together. Okay, we are on a mission together. It's not that I, am, I do the mission of the church. We do the mission of the church. It is a partnership. This is one of the key themes that Paul's talking about with this church. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What was the first day? Where were they? They were down by the river. What were they doing? They were praying. From that day until now. Verse 6. This is a coffee cup verse. This is one you should know, okay? And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We are all a work in progress. There was a song I remember from growing up. I don't remember the lyrics, and I will never sing in front of you. Uh, but it was like, it's called He's Still Working on Me. Does anybody know this song? No? You didn't grow up in church? Curtis did. Nice. He's still working on me, right? That is, it's called sanctification. That's the fancy word for it. It means that every day, every moment throughout the day, the spirit of God that is in us is drawing us to look more like Jesus. So what does that mean? It means that we are moving away from the stuff of the world and towards Christ himself. Not just in the decisions we make and the thoughts that we have and the stuff that we do, but in who we actually are. We are claimed as Christ. We are now his new name part of a new family, okay? This is what Paul is getting after. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We're gonna come back to that at the end. Verse seven, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This, this word affection is, is visceral. It's the guts of Paul. It's the very innermost part of his heart. Have you ever felt that kind of love for someone? We oftentimes say that about a husband and a wife, right? That, that first instinct of like, this is my person. But imagine if that feeling, and this isn't like the, the, you know, the strange feeling of falling in love for the first time, but the actual deep, gut feeling that you have, what if that was true for us as a people? What if it was true for all of us? However many people are in the room and however many people who aren't here today and however many people are going to come because we exist for those who aren't here yet. What would it look like if we loved them with this kind of love? If our affections and our thoughts were drawn to their needs and their growth in Christ, what, what kind of church would that be? I don't know, but I want to find out. This is why we're studying this letter. This whole idea of joy and fellowship, the koinonia. Kids in the room, if you have your sheet, your first 
little point here is that the, the heart of joy is selflessly serving King Jesus and others for the sake of the gospel. I'm going to say it again. The heart of joy is selflessly. You see these qualifiers as we're reading this? The heart of joy is selflessly serving King Jesus and others. Maybe take out others and put someone's name in there. And my neighbor, and my professor, and my wife, and my husband, and my, you fill in the blank, for the sake of the gospel. You see, when Paul wrote the letter, he had names in that blank. He knew exactly who he was writing to because he was aware of their circumstances. He's aware of what's happening in the church. He's aware of the disunity that we're going to talk about. And he puts their names. He's praying for them by name. We say it all the time, but there is power in prayer. There is real power in specific prayer. When you begin to pray for someone by name and for a specific purpose, those prayers are different than a very generalized prayer. Now, God hears all of our prayers, praise God, even the ones we don't even know how to pray yet. But as Paul is praying this, he's thinking of a family. He's thinking of this koinonia, this fellowship, these one another's. So I'm going to run us through real quick, if you're okay with it. Some one another's. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, because I think we'd be here for a long time. But throughout Scripture, we see these one another statements, okay? Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Live in harmony with one another. Accept one another. Serve one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to admonish one another. Encourage one another. Spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Offer hospitality to one another. And the, really the foundation of everything that Jesus did, love one another. Love one another as I have loved you. You see, the, the funny thing about love is we don't initiate love. We are recipients and conduits of love. We don't create it. You don't choose it. It just is there. You are here because someone loved you enough to invite you. You didn't choose that. You are here because God loved you to the point where he was willing to send his son, but not just that he would live, but that he would live and die because someone had to stand in our place. He died the death. Literally, that was our death. We deserved that death. That's love. We're recipients of love. And as we receive love, we can then extend love to other people. That's why when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, they say, what is the greatest commandment? What, what does he say? To love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. That little four-letter word gets us in a lot of trouble, though, because the same love that we use for Jesus is the same love we use for Pizza Hut. Anybody else? Salabar? No? Okay, just me. But we use this word, we throw it around. We do. A teenager. Do you remember being a teenager? Some of you in the room, teenagers, the first time you tell someone you love them that's not your mom or dad? It carries weight. You don't mean it yet, just for the record. You just like the attention, so you love that. But we throw this word around a lot. When I tell Megan I love her, it means something different than when I tell you I love you. And I do love you. I try to tell you every week that I love you. It's this kind of love that Paul is talking about, this type of deep affection for you and the gospel and for its movement in the world. I don't want us to stand still. I don't want us to stay here and die. I want us to move, and that's what love does. Our joy and our unity are found in Christ. When you get the gospel, you get joy every time. 
When you focus on the gospel, you get unity. What happens, what's happening here, what's happening with these two women, Yodia and Syntyche? Anybody else want to say that? Okay. I don't either. This is the last time I'm going to say it until chapter 4. They're in a fight. We don't know why. We can assume a few reasons. Probably the color of the carpet in the church. The type of artwork that's going up or the, the signs are in the wrong spot or there's not enough chairs or whatever the thing is. We're so quick to get upset in the church. And I want to just tell you this, and you've heard me say this before. This is not a perfect church. At some point, we, all of us, are going to let you down. At some point, I'm going to let you down. That is the reality. All of us sinners, all of us in a need of a Savior, all of us being saved. He's going to complete the work that he started in us, but he's not done yet. And so here's the thing. I just want to encourage you. This is not in my notes. Entirely free. If you leave a church because you were upset and you didn't address why you were upset, you have failed the church. And not just the little C church, the big C church. You failed them. If there's something that you want to see in this body, the branch, do it. Don't complain about it. Do it. I know that's a harsh word, and I don't mean it to be harsh. It is the reality. We can't do everything, nor should we. That's what I love about the branch. It's simple. You want to come here? We're going to do a couple of things. We're going to preach the gospel. Amen? This is one of our core values. Preach Christ. We're going to live in community. Anybody in a family group? Anybody hate their family group? Oh, just the one. I wish I hadn't have done that. Yeah. And we're going to love with compassion. This is who we are. So outside of those things, I, I don't really care. I want there to be a vibrant youth ministry in our church one day. I do. I want to see missionaries sent out from this church. I want to see churches planted because this church exists. That's what I want to see. I want to see Willie come back from Taiwan and be like, hey, bro, I think we're going to go plant a church in Taiwan. You got some people who go? Yeah. That's the reality of the gospel making a move in a people, in a place, for the glory and praise of God. All right? So what did Paul give his life to? Two things. He gave his life to preaching the gospel, and he gave his life to planting churches. He went to hard places, and he left a footprint. A place like Philippi. So I want to give us a call real quick. Why, why should we care about church planting? I'm a church planter, okay? It's not because it's like a pet project. I've been transformed by church plants in my life. Most of my Christian life, adult Christian life, has been spent either planting churches or watching churches being planted. I love it because I see it in the Bible. You see it throughout Acts where the gospel goes and churches are planted. Those places are different, aren't they? Just take a look around. Why should we care about planting churches? The first and I think most obvious one is because Jesus cared. Is that a church answer? Is that okay? Because Jesus cared about planting churches. What does he say? The last thing he says to his disciples, go to the ends of the earth and make disciples, baptize and teach them. When you baptize and you teach people the gospel, guess what happens? They come back together. And when they come back together, they worship and they praise and they pray. And there is a church, whether they're down by a river or they're in a gym. 
We should care about church planting because the Great Commission tells us it's important. We should care about church planting because Paul is the example of church planting. You open the New Testament and all of it's written by Paul. What did he do? He planted churches. He is the example. And lastly, and this is so key, new churches, church plants, reach more unbelievers than established churches by tenfold. You know why? Because they're not saddled with baggage. They can go to the ends of the earth because they feel like they're called to the ends of the earth. They don't have to go through a budget process or go to some committee and do the thing. They feel like God's calling them and they go. And they go with confidence and they go with courage. Church plants reach more people for the gospel than any other missional movement in the world. Church plants are missional by nature. They break down barriers to life in community. They go into hard places and they make it look like heaven. Okay? Let's look at Paul's prayer, verse 9. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul's prayer is that their love may abound. That type of love is contagious. It catches fire. But that their love may abound with a specific purpose, with knowledge and discernment. The tension that's happening in the church, you know what it needed? It needed discernment. It needed a time out. Go sit in the corner for a minute. Think about what's important and come back and let's do the work of gospel ministry together so that you approve what is excellent. What is excellent? It's the ways of Jesus. That's what's excellent. To be pure and blameless and then to be filled with the fruit of righteousness, which is what? It's love. It's joy. It's peace. It's patience. It's kindness. It's goodness. It's faithfulness. It's gentleness. It's self-control. It's one fruit. It is the fruit of the Spirit, alive in us for a purpose. What is the purpose? The glory and praise of God. Amen? Amen. Our affections, though, what we love, we remember. That's why we take communion every week. And you'll notice some new things, beautiful frames, to lead and guide you through communion. Okay? One of our heartbeats, taking communion every week, is that you will slow down. It's not a race. And so those prompts are prayer prompts. It's scripture. So slow down and read this morning. But what we love, we remember. What we love, we commit our time and energy and resources to. We, we, a lot of times we think that our affections are stirred by something else, but it's really our actions that are stirred by our affections. What we love, we do. What we love... We do. If we love God, if we love the gospel, then we become proclaimers of the gospel. Hey, there's a a better way, right? The analogy of the crossing guard, that's who we are. Just pointing people to Jesus. We don't do anything special here at the branch except for that. Brothers and sisters, I think that's quite enough. Come 
remember, you take of the bread, you dip it in the cup, and you see the work of God in the world. Here's Paul's encouragement, and we'll close this morning. His encouragement is that the God who finishes what he starts lets nothing limit the extent of the salvation he achieves for and in believers. This is the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. Okay? What you cannot earn, you cannot lose. Hear me say that. If, and this was Ephesians, if salvation is a free gift by grace, through faith, in Christ Jesus, not according to your own deeds, that's not my words, this is Paul's words, if it is truly a gift, I did nothing to receive it. And guys, there is literally nothing that you can do to lose it. So many times, so many times, we'll get phone calls or text messages or emails or anybody been on the Slack channel lately? We'll get a message from someone. Hey, this thing's too big. You're not going to believe what I did. How's God ever going to forgive me? And in that moment is a disbelief of the power of the gospel. Plain and simple. You don't believe that the work of Jesus was enough. And it was. It was. I haven't checked recently. The tomb, though, I think is still empty. And the only thing that is in there is death and sin. Jesus isn't in there. I'm not in there. And neither are you. For those who are out in Christ Jesus, walk in a newness of life. The work God began in you, he will sustain in you, and he will eventually complete in you. That is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You did nothing to earn it. You can't, you can't lose it. You can't. So let's grow together as brothers and sisters. Just as Paul is encouraging the church in Philippi to grow in unity, to grow in joy. Yes, suffering's coming your way. But we already know that. And suffering is temporary. It doesn't get the final say. Not today and not tomorrow. There's your hope. If you came in here this morning looking for, for it, there it is. Whatever trial you're walking in, whatever trial walk through those double doors, it doesn't stay with you. It may stay with you longer than you think, but it doesn't get the final say. I hope you find freedom there. Let's pray. We have, we'll have some of our staff and elders and some other people around the room. Just look for somebody who looks like they're willing to pray with you and just go pray with them if you want to pray with someone. And as we go and take communion, just slow down and remember Dwell well at the table this morning and remember all that God has done, that he has started a work that he has promised to complete and God always keeps his promises yesterday, today, tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to gather this morning, to gather with the hope of eternity with you in your presence because of the work of Jesus and the power of the Spirit in our life, making us each day more and more like our Lord and our Savior. And so God, I pray for those who might be in the room who just aren't quite sure what that looks like. Much like Lydia, who was a God-fearer but not yet a Christian, maybe in, someone in the room is like her today. Pray that she would hear, they would hear the gospel and 
Repent and believe. That is our prayer. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Sudan. God, I, we know that you can do it. We know that you will do it. That one, day, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And today seems like a good day for the gospel to move in a dark place. So we trust you, even in, in these moments, as, as we reflect and respond and all that you've done, all that you're doing and all that you've promised to do, would you help us to think and worship well? May our songs be beautiful in your ears. May our praises bring you joy. And may that joy extend to the ends of the earth. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen.